You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This week is the anniversary of one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. On June 30th, 2013, 19 wildland firefighters died in the Yarnell Hill Fire near Prescott, Arizona. They were part of an elite crew known as the Granite Mountain Hotshots. Here is their final radio traffic. Okay, I'm here with Granite Mountain Hotshots. Our escape route has been cut off. We are preparing a deployment site. And we are burning out around ourselves in the brush. And I'll give you a call when we are under the, sh- the shelters. They say their escape route has been cut off. They're deploying their fire shelters. Well, as wildfires burn across the West, let's remember these men and see what we can learn about wildfire and even about development in the West from Fernanda Santos. She's Phoenix bureau chief for The New York Times. Her new book is called The Fire Line, the story of the granite mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. And Fernanda, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I'd like to start, as you do, with the scene after that radio contact stopped. A police officer in a helicopter is the first to spot the fallen firefighters. What does he see? Describe the scene. So uh, that was Eric Tarr. He was on a... uh uh, a helicopter uh, with two other people, and his role was to find these firefighters in the midst of um, um, fire and smoke, ashes everywhere. And uh, fire shelters, when deployed, they're like silver bullets. They're they're like aluminum foil, bright silver. And uh, he spotted on an opening in the haze these. Um, ashen-looking shelters. And um, it took some time for them to find a place where they could actually land safely because it was so hot down there. And once he did, he had about 500 yards to walk to where these shelters were. And um, pretty pretty soon he was able to find out that they were all, all the firefighters were dead. These are fire shelters that the firefighters themselves deploy. And in a way, they're like an insulating... Um, sleeping bag, I suppose. How hot did it get? The temperature um, uh, is was estimated to be at about 2,000 Fahrenheit. Uh, the fire shelters, they are not, uh, first of all, they are a measure of less resort. Any, anyone who works wildfires knows that um, if you have to deploy your shelter, it means that something went terribly wrong and you found yourself in a situation that you should never find yourself in, which is uh, facing the possibility of a fire um, uh, hitting you or uh, or you're on the path of an incoming fire and have no way of getting out, no safe route to get you out of there. Um, and, uh, you know, the the fire shelters are not built to withstand direct flame contact. They, are res- they resist up to, um, they start disintegrating after about 300 Fahrenheit. Um, and, uh, you know, the human body can only sustain as much heat. So even if the shelters were to survive, the temperature inside the shelters, if it rises up to 300 or more, um, you know, there's no way anyone can survive in there. Um, so in that case, there was really no chance of survivability because the flames, the fire literally rolled over these 19 men as they were in their shelters. Mm-hmm. You write essentially that this fire made a U-turn and in some ways caught the crew off guard. How does a fire make a U-turn? Fires are such interesting characters. You know, I have gained such 
uh, respect and appreciation for the power of a wildfire. And, uh, and fire and weather together are like the best or the worst uh, co-conspirators. Um, they sort of orchestrate these tricks on firefighters all the time. Uh, anyone who's ever watched a fire or uh, fought a fire knows that uh, a wind gust can change everything. And in this case, the fire was, uh, the flames were heading north. So they passed the town of Yarnell, um, which is where the town, the crew was working and going to a, a small town just north of Yarnell, another small town called People's Valley. And the storm was coming from the opposite direction. It's a monsoon season in Arizona. Um, so we have these powerful storms with uh, gusty winds up to 30, 40, 50 miles an hour sometimes. And uh, the the fire and the winds collided. And the wind literally, um, from the way, from the direction it was blowing, was able to turn the the flames first um, to the east and then south uh, just from the sheer force of the wind on the fire and the fact that there was still vegetation that had not burned for the fire to burn. So the fire goes chasing what's there to burn and the wind pushing it in different directions. It found other places that had not burned yet and basically did a U-turn or many people, uh, some people describe me, uh, described to me, it did a, a horseshoe in the air. And, uh, and it came back towards the direction where the crew was working at that time. So these were hotshot firefighters, these 19. You write that the hotshots were like migrant farm workers chasing harvest time from state to state. Just tell us briefly about hotshots and the, the lives they lead. So, uh, you know, the first thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that um, wildfires are fought very differently than a city fire. You don't have a truck, a hydrant, water in hand to um, uh, fight the flames. Uh, for the most part, firefighters, uh, wildland fi- wildfires are fought with crews that use um, construction tools, as I call them, um, shovels, rakes, pickaxes, chainsaws. And uh, hotshots, there's a hierarchy of these crews. Hotshots are at the top of this hierarchy. They are the best trained, um, the most daring, and also the uh, the ones best uh, who work closest to the flames. So they take on the riskiest, most difficult assignments uh, on a fire. And uh, they, um, you know, in, in the case of the Yarnell Hill fire, they were called uh, on the third day after various different crews had tried to put out the fire and were not able to. Um, and these guys are, and women, uh, there are some women who fight fires too. They are what's known as interagency resource. And what that means is that they can be used by any agency that needs help fighting a wildfire. So it could be Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs, state land, uh, whatever kind of ownership or management the land has. And so... They travel during the fire season, which generally goes from about mid-April to mid-October, all over the West. Um, in this case, you know, Granite Mountain hotshots were based in Prescott, Arizona, but they had never fought a fire in Prescott until two weeks before the fire that killed them. Um, in all the years that the crew had been around, it was um, 
turned into a hot chocolate in 2008. They had traveled, you know, Montana, uh, Colorado, Idaho, everywhere. So they are like in these little buggies, these um, uh, Ford F750 um, retrofitted like little school buses. And they sit there and they travel and they ride these beautiful roads and they go to these places that most most of us never get to see and um, sleep on the dirt and uh, might go 14 days without a shower um, or, you know, without a hot meal. But um, but that's the life they li- they live and, and a life that they really love. They really do enjoy. I've, I've yet to meet a firefighter who does not love the job they do. Yeah. And you dive into who these men were. And that's after spending time with their families. Quoting from the book, I was graciously received and sometimes slept in the homes where these men had grown up. I played with the children they fathered and hugged the women, parents and step parents they left behind. I want to focus on one man in particular, the superintendent of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, a man named Eric Marsh. He was the one who hired many of uh, the crew members. And there's a detail in your book that caught my attention. In the job interviews, he would ask the prospective firefighter, when was the last time you lied? <laughs> what does that tell us about this man, Eric Marsh? Eric Marsh was such a fascinating character. Eric was a um, a recovering alcoholic. He had been sober for 13 years when he died. And um he had, I assume, and I know for a fact, he'd had to um, lie or hide from others uh, some of the ugly things that anyone who has a substance abuse problem uh, has to do. Um, and so uh, he understood very much two things, that uh, people who stumble and fall are able to pull themselves, pick themselves up and, and carry on and improve themselves and their lives. And he also understood that for, for that to happen, you needed others who believed in you and were willing to give you a second chance. In fact, I call the crew a crew of second chancers because of the fact that um, they had almost as if it were a mission of theirs to find every season one or two people who needed this extra help, who needed this guiding hand, but who had a lot of potential and obviously fit all the physical requirements and so forth that the crew had um, to sort of turn that person into not only a great fireman, as Eric used to say, but a great man. So to him, it was more than just being a, a superintendent, a, a leader to a crew. It was almost like being a a surrogate father to these men. In fact, his nickname was Papa. Um, And it was because he had that sort of disciplinarian attitude Mm -hmm. that a father has, but also this, you know, this love in everything he did for the guys. One of the men he hires, one of the 19 who lost their lives at Yarnell Hill was John Persen Jr., age 24, a recovering meth addict who saw firefighting as a way to turn his life around. Let's continue this conversation after a break. We're speaking with the New York Times Phoenix Bureau Chief Fernanda Santos. Her new book is The Fire Line, the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. We're speaking to her for a few reasons. There are obviously a number of fires burning throughout the West, including the Beaver Creek Fire, and this week marks the three-year anniversary of that Yarnell Hill fire in Arizona that was so deadly. So back in a moment on Colorado Matters from CPR news. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and it is wildfire season in the West. The folks around Walden, Colorado certainly feel that. The Beaver Creek Fire, now above 6,000 acres, and the estimated containment date won't be until 
August at this point. In light of fire season, we're speaking with Fernanda Santos. She's Phoenix Bureau Chief for the New York Times, and her new book is called The Fire Line, the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. This week marks the three-year anniversary of the Yarnell Hill Fire, which uh, killed 19 hotshot firefighters. That's a term of art in the industry. These are firefighters who travel the country fighting wildland fires. And Fernanda, as you write, the Forest Service predicts a net loss of up to 37 million acres of forest land to development by 2060. It's an area larger than Pennsylvania. And increasingly, you say, decisions to fight fires aggressively start with how many homes might burn. Every such decision you write puts wildland firefighters in danger. Um, are firefighter deaths simply a given because people want so badly to live in the forest? I think the way to put it is that it's virtually impossible to avoid death in fighting wildfires because, first of all, it's it's a very dangerous job. Every movement they make, every step they take is a risky movement, a risky step. Death for or serious injury for wildland firefighters can come from driving on treacherous roads and, you know, rolling down an embankment. Um, it can come from a rock that rose downhill as they're working, cutting line down below. It can come from a branch that falls down from a tree. And also, obviously, it can also come from fire, as it did um, on June 30th, 2013, to these 19 firefighters I wrote about. So, you know... Um, the role of development has just intensified those risks because now you have communities, um, people who are going to, you know, screaming on the face of these incident commanders who are the people in charge of the wildland firefighting operations in a certain fire, um, people calling their mayor or the city council member or their governor um, and saying, put another crew out there. You have to save my house. You can't let my house burn. How come they can't stop this fire? And uh, there are times when fire cannot be stopped. In fact, if you think about it, fire is really the only force of nature that we still think that we can fight. And we have had incredible success fighting fire and stopping fire in the wild over, um, you know, uh, the decades that we've been doing that. Um, but when you have a combination of homes that are built on the edge of forests, and you have forests that have, for decades, not been properly managed, haven't been thinned as they should have, um, haven't been uh, fires that burned there were not sort of uh, didn't burn long enough to sort of uh, clean up the forest floor, then what you have is this sort of perfect storm. And when you put another crew out there to save somebody's home, what you're doing essentially is putting the lives of these young men and women at risk. So the decisions that people have to make uh, or the thought they should have is, what is more important? Is it to save a house or is it to preserve the lives of these uh, young people who are fighting these fires out there? And there are times that these decisions have to be made and that's how we have to think about them. Mm. What part did the crew and its leadership play in the loss of the 19? Ultimately, the crew agreed uh, with a decision to go down the, the, the ridge where they were into a canyon that the fire had not yet burned, and it was full of vegetation. A, a canyon works, and a, and a wildfire works like a chimney. You know, it, it pulls the fire out uh, up, and um, so it sort of funnels the fire. And... Uh, 
obviously we don't know what thought process they went through to make that decision to go down from an area the fire had already burned, which is where they were, an area that's known as the black, um, into this part that the fire had not burned. But uh, ultimately, they agreed to it and they went down and they and they did it. So you can say it's their fault. But, but is it really a matter of blame that we should be focusing on. Mm. I don't think anyone who fights fires, whether it be fires in the wild or in the cities, um, will ever make a decision that's predicated on the possibility of death. They will never say, I'm going to do this and maybe I can make it. Maybe we can make it. Maybe we won't, but let's try. Um, When they make decisions, they're difficult, tough decisions, but they are always um, based in what they think is the best decision for them at that moment in time. There was a town down there, the town of Yarnell, that fire was going its way. And it's the belief of any of everyone who knew this crew well that they wanted to make themselves useful and reposition themselves. So once the fire hit there, they could be helpful instead of sort of isolating themselves and staying where they were and let this fire kind of blow between them and the town and, uh, and kind of separate them completely from any type of firefighting operation uh, at that moment that would be of great need as as it turned out to be greater even than anybody imagined. I want to say, um, just for some grounding in Colorado history, there were nine members of a hotshot crew killed on Colorado's Storm King Mountain in 1994. That was known as the South Canyon Fire. It was near Glenwood Springs. Mm -hmm. National Geographic wrote about that and uh, says, quote, this fire made it more acceptable for firefighters to speak up or even decline assignments they consider too dangerous. Uh, So that may have been the effect of that Storm King Mountain fire in 94. Before we go, I want to dig into the pay that hotshots receive. It differed in in the case of the 19 from man to man, and, and so did their death benefits, by the way. Right. This was the only municipally based hotshot crew. Their employer was the city of Prescott, Arizona. Um, did the city take good care of these men in life and their families in death? The short answer is no. Uh, and the reason is that in life, uh, this crew was constituted in 2008. And as everybody you know, who's a homeowner remembers uh, a couple of years after that, we had this uh, very serious uh, crisis in the housing market. And it, it hit Arizona particularly hard because the state of Arizona has relied so much on the real estate uh, construction business um, uh, to to make its money. And so the city of Prescott, as many other cities in the state, struggled mightily to pay its bills. And one of the ways that it found uh, was to cut uh, from various city agencies, and one of them was the fire department. And uh, at that point, they became Uh, almost determined to, I mean, it it was almost as if their goal was to uh, do away with the crew. Uh, Even though the crew, uh, the Granite Mountain Hotshots, got a lot of the money that they spent back, most of the money. In fact, some people argue that they broke even or even made money for the city because they were reimbursed every time they fought fire for the Forest Service or any other agency. They were paid back for the hours that they worked. Um, So um, the crew... As any hotshot crew across the country, be it federal or local, um, it's made up of some full-time employees and some seasonal employees. 
Grandma Malta has six full-time employees, and of the 19, 13 were part-time, uh, were seasonal. Uh, the rookies made $12.09 an hour, but they didn't qualify for the type of uh, pension, retirement, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, death benefits that um, uh, the urban firefighters were under the city um, of Prescott uh, Fire Department qualified for or the full-time members of the crew. And that created a huge division and a major um, uh, schism in town where um, some people came out in full support for benefits for everybody um, and others started turning to the families and saying, you know, you already got a lot of donations. What else do you want? What else do you need? Why do you need more money? And it became a battle about money when it shouldn't be. It should be just a battle about doing it right by people who accepted a great risk to do a public service. And, um, um, you know, it, it ended up in the courts. Uh, some of the part, um, seasonal families, um, sued and, uh, ended up three, four of them, um, at this point have qualified, have, have been granted the uh, same benefits as the full-time members of the crew, but they in, each individually had to bring a case to court. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Fernanda Santos is Phoenix Bureau Chief for the New York Times, and her new book is called The Fire Line. It is about the deaths and lives of 19 wildland firefighters in Arizona three years ago this week. Read an excerpt at CPRnews.org. Coming up, marijuana migrants. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Legal marijuana has drawn all sorts to Colorado. Tourists, entrepreneurs, folks who want work. Add to the list Devin Butts. He boarded a bus in Texas this spring bound for Pueblo. He wanted to use cannabis legally as a way to kick other habits. And he wanted a job. But he ended up homeless. And he's not alone. Journalist Joel Warner found a spike in homelessness attributable at least in part to legal weed. Warner covers the marijuana industry for the International Business Times. And Joel, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit more about Devin Butts. What was his life like in Texas? And how did that drive his decision to come to Colorado? He was a young man who had already been through a lot of trauma. Um, He lost both his parents when he was very young, kind of got caught up in smoking marijuana when he was young, and then moved on to many other much uh, more um, debilitating uh, debilitating drugs and... uh, problems with law enforcement. And so he saw the legal industry here not just as an opportunity for employment, but as a way to get clean from those harsher substances, I guess. Yeah, he actually wasn't looking for a job per se when he first boarded the bus in Texas. What he figured is that, look, he made a decision. He wanted to clean up his life. And he decided that of all of the substances he was attracted to, uh, marijuana was the most attractive and the least uh, dangerous. So we figured if he could go somewhere where he could legally use marijuana and not get busted by law enforcement, he might be able to clean himself up of all the other substances. So he arrives in Pueblo and he expects to spend, I guess, the first part of his stint at a homeless shelter, although it's closed, I think, the night that he arrives. He gets a little too late into town. Yeah, he shows up at the homeless shelter in Pueblo. It was too late, so he ended up sleeping uh, between the uh, dumpsters behind the shelter, which actually, you know, according to what what I heard from him, wasn't all that uncommon. 
You know, he, he'd been living on and off the streets uh, for years at that point. And you write that since Colorado launched its legal cannabis market, 20 to 30 percent of newcomers to homeless shelters are there because of marijuana. How did you arrive at that number? Yeah, and I think we have to put a caveat there. That's just anecdotally, and that's just what I found, because I'd heard uh, mention of this, that it had been having an impact on uh, shelter services. And uh, so I said, someone has to have actually looked at the numbers at some point, and no one had. So I started going uh, shelter by shelter, service by service here in Denver, down in Pueblo, uh, Colorado Springs. And across the board, these shelters said, yeah, we, you know, anecdotally, we see between 20 and 30 percent of folks, newcomers, say they're, they've come to Colorado, at least in part, because of marijuana. Just to be clear, are you attributing their homelessness to marijuana? No. There's sort of... There's no evidence that marijuana causes homelessness. Most likely these are folks who are struggling in other parts of the country and for one reason or another said, look, you know, let's go to Colorado uh, to either get a job in marijuana or uh, to use medically or recreationally. And they moved here. They're not necessarily all migrants. That is, they might be Coloradans in those homeless shelters who have been here for some time. Yes, but then they'd be moving from one part of of Colorado to, say, uh, Denver or whatnot. Uh, Because, of course, laws differ within the state as well, so that's a factor to consider. At its most basic, of course, the cause of homelessness is a lack of affordable housing, accessible housing. And uh, as we've reported frequently at CPR, Colorado's Front Range has a shortage of affordable housing. Does legal marijuana somehow make that market even tighter? It's very possible. We have seen uh, the data showing that it has increased... uh, the commercial real estate market, that more and more of the commercial real estate here in Denver is being used up by these giant grow facilities. And what a lot of uh, real estate experts say is that just like, say, the tech industry in San Francisco has increased uh, the housing market there and the prices, folks say that the booming marijuana market here is one of the reasons that Denver is becoming a more and more attractive place for folks to live. Because it may also be bringing people of means as well. Yeah, the idea is, is that lots of folks are moving here because of legal marijuana, ranging from from entrepreneurs uh, to venture capitalists, all the way down the socioeconomic scale to folks who don't have these sort of resources. So those who come here with the idea of getting work in the cannabis industry are sometimes met with bad news. You write, to get a job in Colorado's marijuana industry, Someone uh, like Mr. Butts, who we've been talking about, needs a marijuana occupational license from the state, which requires a notarized application form, a $150 fee, and proof of state residence. And even if he were to get all that, Butts also has to pass a criminal background check. Is that something he'd be able to do? No, he has a very long record. So he will never be able to get a job within uh, medical marijuana or recreational marijuana in the state at this point. And others then are met with this sort of uh, sobering reality, for lack of a better term, when they arrive here, thinking that they can work in the industry but can't. Yeah, this is one of the major concerns that's that's going on in legalization movements these days, where most of these laws have these uh, criminal background restrictions. And it made sense at first. You know, it was seen as this kind of criminal substance. Folks with a background shouldn't. But then say, you know, a lot of the folks who were the biggest victims of the war on drugs— therefore can't get jobs in the new legalization industry and help will potentially, like, repair. I'd like to get some perspective from a shelter now. About a year after recreational marijuana started, I talked to the head of Urban Peak, 
um, which I think you mentioned in your story as well. It serves youth in Denver. Kimberly Easton is its CEO. A large majority of the youth we serve are from Denver or the state of Colorado in particular. But with the legalization of marijuana, we are finding through kind of anecdotal self-report that a lot of youth are coming here um, because they were homeless somewhere else. And they figured if they were going to have access to marijuana here, that they might as well be homeless here. And you found that at Urban Peak, this youth youth shelter with more young people, um, that fewer of them were getting services, fewer of them taking advantage of education and job training uh, than some of the others at the shelter. What do you make of that? Um, that's really tricky. That's yeah. that's a anecdotal from uh, Kimberly Easton, and I believe her. I mean, I don't see why she would making it up. Uh, the idea that marijuana can have negative social consequences is very controversial in the highly kind of charged politics of, of marijuana these days. Yeah. So that's uh, that is a that would probably be a, a semi uh, controversial claim. I think that an overarching idea here, Joel Warner, in your piece for the International Business Times about marijuana's legalization and how it might connect to homelessness is a lot of the evidence is anecdotal. A lot of questions are yet to be answered. I guess the the state is embarking on something of a study in this regard. Yeah, that hadn't really been uh, covered um, until uh, I wrote about it, but uh, the state has uh, donated uh, or devoted some money to looking at uh, homeless individuals in certain uh, jails around the state to see what impact marijuana has had on their circumstances. And that's actually really key. Because once you have those answers, you can start talking about services, I suppose. Yeah. So the way that uh, Colorado tax revenues around marijuana uh, work is that uh, they can be they can be used to uh, regulate or deal with uh, the impacts of legalization. So once they show... Uh, causationally that that it has had some potential impacts on marijuana um on homeless services then they could actually kind of potentially devote some of those monies is there any of that going on now yet maybe by municipalities right they have some authority here yeah uh, the city of aurora recently uh got a lot of attention for donating fi- uh, 4.5 million dollars from its marijuana revenue over the next 3 years uh to uh, to uh, homeless uh, services in the city Well, I'd like to go back to Devin Butts, whom you feature in this story. How's he doing? That is a good question. I asked uh, the head of Posada, uh, the uh, the shelter in Pueblo last week. They haven't heard from him in quite a while. They've not heard from him. What was the last that you had heard from him? Last I heard was um, he was getting ready to go back to the shelter after his long day with me, and he was ready to kind of start anew and find work the next day. Uh, but right before I said goodbye, he wandered off by the shelter to smoke a little more marijuana. And I suppose the picture that you paint here then is that what legal cannabis has brought to Colorado is really a very wide range of socioeconomic um, class of of people. I mean, it's a real diversity in terms of how it's changing Colorado, would you say? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the fascinating thing about legalization here. That's why it's actually a really fun beat uh, to cover as a reporter, because I think at first most people just said, oh, we're going to legalize it, and that'll be it. But when you legalize something that's never been legal before and had, has had all this social stigma in society, there are all these unusual, unexpected consequences. And it impacts folks both financially but also socially and culturally in these ways that we had no idea how to really expect. 
How has the industry responded, if at all, to your reporting on the homeless connection in particular? Are they aware of this potential trend? It's tricky. I think like most industries, they don't want to come out and say, yes, we are uh, potentially causing a strain on homeless services. They don't want to admit that until someone forces them to do so. But there are certain individuals, for example, here in Denver who say, part of our social mission, we want to support existing services like this. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Joel Warner writes about marijuana for the International Business Times. He's based in Denver. Find links to his stories on marijuana and homelessness at cprnews.org. Just ahead, lessons for doctors from the Holocaust. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On the University of Colorado's medical campus in Aurora, there's a gallery, a place where art and science meet. And it currently features paintings about the Holocaust by artist Jeffrey Lawrence, who meditates on trauma through his work. This exhibition is part of a much larger effort to expose medical students to Holocaust history. We're going to listen back to my conversation from last fall now with Dr. Matthew Winia, He directs the Center for Bioethics and Humanities on the Anschutz campus. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Give us some examples of how physicians participated in the Holocaust, which killed more than 6 million Jews. Well, I suppose the the most infamous examples of physician participation in the Holocaust are the medical experiments that um, that have become pretty well known. Joseph Mengele is the doctor of death at Auschwitz and so on. I think the more interesting and potentially more important historically role of physicians in the Holocaust, though, was in the years leading up to the mass killings of Jews, Roma, Sinti, in the concentration camps. It was in the framing of the thought, the ideology behind uh, the idea that you could heal through killing or that you could affect public health by removing entire portions of the population which were seen as a threat. So the notions of eugenics and racial hygiene, as it was called uh, at that time, were probably the more important historically and also the more important aspects of medical participation in terms of the influence that they had on the way we think about medical ethics today. Hmm. What's fascinating is that before the Nazis rose to power, Germany had been among the most advanced nations in the world in terms of medicine. So something changed, an ethic changed, a perception changed, didn't it? Yeah, there are many uh, very difficult aspects of talking and thinking about this history. Uh, One of the most difficult is the fact that we tend to think of Nazi doctors as being monsters, uh, as being evil, and the assumption seems to sometimes be that they must have arisen from a system or a culture that was inherently evil and bad to begin with. But of course, that's dangerous thinking because it means you don't look for the possibility of that in yourself, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, we have pretty clear examples of American doctors and uh, Western other Western doctors being unable to learn from the history of the Holocaust. Following the Nuremberg trials, there was the promulgation of the Nuremberg Code, which was supposed to require informed consent, for example, of subjects of research. And yet, we went on in the United States to have a series of research ethics scandals throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s. I think of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, for instance. 
Right. I think that's probably the most infamous example in the United States. And that study went on for another 30 years after the Nuremberg Code had been promulgated. And it was not uncommon for doctors in that era to say, well, the Nuremberg Code was really made for Nazi monsters. It wasn't made for fine, upstanding people like us. Mm -hmm. we, we are kind, good-hearted people who are looking out for the well-being of of the community and the and the subjects, and yet you know there are clear examples where we weren't. We had to we had to learn our own lesson because we were incapable of learning the lesson of the Nazi doctors. I'm fascinated to learn that informed consent actually grows out of the Holocaust. Yeah, so it actually goes before that. Um, one of the great uh, and tragic ironies of this history is that at the time of the Nuremberg trial. Uh, the prosecutors looked for international or national standards for the conduct of research on human beings. And they were really only able to find a couple examples which were actually German. So the United States did not have a national standard calling for informed consent. The Germans did. And that's because back in the 1890s, a doctor uh, in Prussia, a guy named Albert Neisser, who had discovered Neisseria gonorrhea, uh, was doing studies on sexually transmitted diseases, and he intentionally infected some prostitutes and some orphans with syphilis in order to test treatments. So this is in the 1890s. But this grows out of an incident in Germany, and then obviously during the Holocaust, Germany does not heed its own previous lessons. Right. And then again, the United States, after the Holocaust, does not heed the lessons of the Holocaust or what came before it. And so you seem to have something of a pattern here. I suppose this is why you want to teach the history to medical students. Yeah. And in fact, we're uh, hoping to broaden this not just to medical students because there were dentists involved, there are nurses involved. This history affects every health professional group. Uh, we, we did a bit of research uh, last year and found that among medical uh, schools nationwide um, and including Canada, we found that only 16 percent have any required curriculum to teach medical students about this important history and yet this history is probably the single most important event in the history of medical ethics, maybe ever, certainly in the last hundred years. Hmm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are joined by Dr. Matthew Winia, who directs the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. And we're talking about a fledgling program on that campus, which will teach medical students and others the history of the Holocaust as it relates to medical ethics. And Dr. Winnie, I want to return to this notion of the really the war crimes that doctors perpetrated in the Holocaust. How did they justify it? Um, many of them saw it as a public health service. And, and I wonder how that thinking might inform uh, any kind of a slippery slope that could happen today. Sure. Um, this is a long and complex history, but um, I think it can be summarized fairly in saying that it started before the war, a number of years before the war when the Nazis first came to power. And they began a secret program, uh, which is called the T4 program, in which they essentially killed, they called it euthanasia, but it wasn't euthanasia in any meaningful sense of that word as a, a good death. It, it was euthanasia in the sense of murder. So they murdered 
German citizens, not Jews uh, necessarily, but just individuals who were institutionalized and who were not thought to have the capacity to be productive citizens. It was seen as a public health type of enterprise, but it was also an economic enterprise. It was also about bringing Germany back from the economic malaise it had been suffering. And they, so there were a lot of posters and so on. Uh, there was a lot of teaching about eugenics and about the danger of having people in the community who uh, were taking resources but weren't contributing anything. And that is the slippery slope because once you say that someone is contributing less than another – and you start to create rules by which that person either exists or does not, my goodness, where do you see right. that kind of debate today? Well, um, I mean, it certainly happens, although I'm hesitant to draw direct parallels just because, you know, if we go to the research ethics uh, issue, for example, I can tell you examples of research ethics scandals from the last 10, 20 years None of them will compare hmm. to the types of research ethics abuses, the heinous crimes that were committed by the Nazis, right? So failing to fully inform someone about the risks of uh, intervention that you're planning is not the same as intentionally infecting a young girl with typhus and after she dies, killing her twin so that you can compare their two bodies, Right. That's a kind of research ethics abuse that has no comparison today. Um, at the same time, if we only look at that extreme example, then it's hard to see the path from an upstanding professional community to one that carries out evil. And I think it's important to recognize the steps along that path and to recognize where you can put up barriers. So it is a slippery slope, but the way we deal with slippery slopes is not to never do anything that has any potential uh, risk, but rather to find ways to establish barriers. So the way we do this in the United States today for research ethics is every time someone wants to do research on human subjects, they have to go to a committee. That committee includes people from the general community as well as scientists. They have to approve it. They, it's, a, it's a bureaucratic mechanism, but it's intended – to prevent abuses of human subjects in research. Is it your hope that more medical campuses will teach this history? Yes. I, my, my own sense, I, I came to the University of Colorado from the American Medical Association where I had done work with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum on these issues. And our sense at the American Medical Association and my sense coming to Colorado is that this history is so important um, to the profession of medicine that every medical student should be exposed to it at least in a basic way. I don't think every medical student needs to become a historian. They don't all need to become experts in this. But everyone needs to recognize the ways in which this set of events reflects and is reflected in our ethical standards today around public health, around genetics, around research ethics. Essentially, every aspect of healthcare ethics and professionalism today is touched by this history. Is there a place today, a country, um, a conflict where you wish you could teach this, uh, you know, where you're concerned mm. about 
Sure. Um, and I, I hesitate to get into an area where I'm not really an expert, which is political science. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at Syria, if you look at Afghanistan, if you look at Iraq, um, these are areas where they're not um, – they're not implementing sort of science-based ideological genocides, but there are still genocides taking place, and they are still um, there are still roles for doctors. Uh, it's embarrassing to the medical profession that Bashar al-Assad is an ophthalmologist trained in the West, uh, the president of Syria. So the roles of doctors in perpetuating uh, genocides and human rights abuses is still something that we need to pay attention to on an international scale. Incidentally, I don't want to take uh, America off the table though. Um, as you will recall, it was not that long ago that we had American medical professionals participating in abusive interrogations of prisoners at Guantanamo and in Iraq. So it, it is possible still for us to really significantly slip in holding on to our ethical standards. Right, and it becomes even more difficult in a time of war or a time of feeling under threat. And yet those are sometimes when you have to hold fastest to these ethics. Yeah. And Hitler uh, recognized this himself. Karl Brandt, you mentioned at the outset of our discussion, was Hitler's personal physician. He became the chief defendant in the Nuremberg trials. Um, and Dr. Brandt said that the Fuhrer realized that it would be harder for people to object to mass killings of disabled people and other populations during the war. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Dr. Matthew Winia talked to us last fall about CU's Holocaust, Genocide, and Contemporary Bioethics program. The art gallery on the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora hosts Is, Was, Will Be, Holocaust paintings by Jeffrey Lawrence through early August. It is primary day in Colorado. At CPRnews.org, find five storylines to bring you up to speed on the Republican Senate primary, for instance, and the Spendy District Attorney's race in Denver. We'll have full coverage tomorrow in Morning Edition, Colorado Matters, and at CPRnews.org. Finally today, Inner Oceans has had a steady rise since forming three years ago. The Denver Experimental Pop Group received the 2014 Best New Artist Award from Westward. They performed on the Underground Music Showcase main stage in Denver last July. The band plans to release its debut album in the fall. It'll feature material they wrote and recorded during a month of seclusion in a studio outside of Bailey, Colorado. For a preview, though, here's the song Call Through the Wire. Everyone keeps moving
That is Inner Oceans. We'll look forward to their full-length release soon. The song is Call Through the Wire. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter, at Colorado Matters, on Facebook, CPR News, or at our website, comment at the bottom of individual articles when you hear a story you like or have thoughts about. That's at CPR.org. This is Colorado Public Radio News.